Let's bow for a word of prayer together. Our Father, we commit these next few moments to you and pray that you'll be very present with us, that you'll guide us in this study of this foundational book. And I pray that we'll have insight and understanding that will strengthen us in our walk with you. Lord, we don't approach this as an academic thing, but as the source of life, of strength, of understanding, and as the basis for our study of who you are and what it is you have done for mankind and for us as individuals. Apply the truths, I pray, of your word to our hearts individually this day, and may we grow in our walk with you because of what you have taught us. Lord, I thank you for these people, and I pray for each individual this morning that you will minister to each heart and life according to the individual need by the power of your Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that you will know, of course, I'm sure, about the book of Genesis is that it is truly a living book. Now, I realize that some individuals have come to know Christ, and the first thing they've done is, sit, is to sit down with the Bible and believe, well, you start the beginning of a book, right? And you start reading through. And, and sometimes they get uh, bogged down, and sometimes it really opens up to them. But I think it's important for us to know that the, the, the book of Genesis is living, not only because God inspired it and empowers it, but because it chronicles the lives of real people. And I think one of the most important things for us to do, if we haven't already, is to be able to recognize that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all of the people you read about in the Scripture were living people, just as you and I are. And they had problems and they had difficulties and they had, uh, you know, all the kinds of things we face. They face too. And yet when you read through the uh, Hebrews chapter 11 hall of faith, you discover that uh, what tied them together and what gave them the strength to live was that faith in God. And hopefully that's what links us to them, that common uh, faith that you and I possess in our hearts through Christ, which they also possessed. And so we're going to be looking at people who, who were flesh and blood, and, and they got hot, and they got cold, and they got thirsty, and they got hungry, and, and they got hurt, and, and they got sick, all the kinds of things that we face. And, and we begin to realize that, uh, as the Scripture tells us, Elijah was a man such as we are in James. And yet, God worked through him. And so it is God will work through you and through me, even though we are not, quote, walking in the pages of Scripture as these individuals were. So the spiritual truths that you're going to find in the book of Genesis speak directly to us, I hope, just as they spoke to the people to whom they first came through the Spirit of God. And what we're going to do as we proceed with the uh, course of this study is we're going to bring in the historical and geographical contexts of the events which transpired. We're going to see who else lived at that time, what peoples, what places existed, uh, how do the Mesopotamian and Egyptian uh, civilizations coalesce with the scriptural account as we read it here. And so that we, we see scripture not as an isolated thing, but within the overall context of, of what God intended it to, to be, I think, for us. We're going to discover when and where these 
people lived, if we are not already familiar with that. And we're going to see how they related to these surrounding peoples and, and the places neighboring to them. And we, we talk about Abraham. We say Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, and he traveled north, and he went northwest, and he stopped at a place called Haran with his father Terah. And with his father Terah died, uh, God said, move on, and he went on down to Canaan. Well, what is that place like? What is the topography like? Uh, who lived in those places at that particular time? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, an isolated place or an isolated uh, part of the world. That was the heart of the world. That was the so-called fertile crescent, the cradle of civilization. That's where civilization was born. I, I realize if you've been following the news lately, you know that now and more and more they're saying, oh, we, we've got proof that mankind started up in Africa and we're tracing down the, uh, uh, the DNA of certain you know, females and we're finding out that the first female who was the originator of the human race was in East Africa and all of this. Well, you know, uh, we, we can accept that if we want to, but I don't think that's going to be supportive of what we find in Scripture as we study along, particularly through the book of Genesis. Now, I tend to do a lot of cross-referencing. I hope that's good as far as you are concerned. We're going to be looking at a lot of other passages in the Old Testament, a lot of other passages in the New Testament that reinforce the truths as we come across them in the book of Genesis. Because I believe God tells us over and over and over again the same truths. Why? Huh. Well, you know why, don't you? We are slow of hearing. As, as God said of the nation of Israel, you're, you're kind of a stiff-necked generation. And I think individually we find ourselves to be that way once in a while, maybe more often than we wish to be. Sometimes hard of hearing. We're not really hearing what God is saying to us. And so he says it over and over again. And what has really been exciting to, to Lois and myself through the studies we've had in the past is that we discover that every single truth that you find in the New Testament, you will find it in the Old Testament. The New Testament simply reinforces and amplifies what the Old Testament already tells us. And it's really exciting. I, I realize, and, and I've been in places before, where some people had never studied the Old Testament at all before. And they thought it was just a bunch of historical records, you know, begats and so forth, that didn't relate to, to life as we live it. But I'm sure you have, through the Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah and different places, have found passages that really just come alive and speak to us today. And actually, you'll discover that in every single Old Testament book. Genesis was not the Hebrew name of this book. On your outline, we're at uh, Roman number one, uh, large letter B, the title. The Hebrew title of this book was In the Beginning, Barasheth, because the Hebrews tended to title their scrolls, if they gave them a title, from the first word or first phrase of the writing, of the text. That's generally the way they did it. Now, of course, I think it's important for us to remember that these, past, these books were originally written as scrolls. They weren't written as books as we know them with pages in them, but as scrolls that, that were in many cases yards and yards long. Uh, and, of course, finding it would be a little more difficult. Today, if all we had were scrolls, we'd have a large difficulty cross-referencing, <laughs> running over and grabbing out the scroll and spinning it, you know, to the place where we want to look at it rather than just going like this, you know, and, and turning. So we can be thankful for the books that we have.
Genesis was the title given to the book in the Septuagint. Now, in uh, number two there, you'll see it says Septuagint, and there's a, cap, a Roman numeral LXX following that. Uh, generally, the Septuagint is designated by the LXX, which means 70, uh, because theoretically there were 70 or 72 scholars who worked on putting together the Septuagint version, which was the very first translation, at least that we know about, of the Hebrew Scripture into another tongue. The Hebrew Scripture was translated into the Greek language in Alexandria, Egypt, somewhere in the second to third uh, centuries before Christ. And the Septuagint version was, was uh, made available because the Alexandrian Jews had become so separated from the Palestinian Jews that they were losing contact with the Hebrew language and many of the Hebrew customs, and therefore the, the, the book was put into Greek so that they could read it, and, and of course it would be usable for bringing in proselytes to the faith also. The Septuagint translation of the Scripture of the Old Testament uses the word genesios to translate the account of in the second chapter of Genesis, verse 4, in the very first phrase, you'll discover these words. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the account of. So the Septuagint translators took that phrase, the account of, and they use that to be the title of the entire book, the account of. Not real exciting, you know, probably most of us wouldn't buy a book that was simply titled The Account Of. It's like going out and buying a book that just is entitled History. Even though many historians in the past, that's what they've titled their books, you know, Tacitus, Histories. Uh, but uh, the word genesios in English, or that is the word Genesis in English, means origins or beginnings. And so today we call this Genesis, coming from the Septuagint translation, and it means the book of origins. And so we're looking at the book of origins here. Since it is of origins, the book of origins, it's been placed at the very beginning of the Scripture. It's the opening book, and it's so logically placed in that particular position. Genesis not only describes the origin of the whole created order, but it also describes the origin of human civilization and human culture. You and I are well aware of the fact that in our public schools today, and of course many of the private schools and universities also, uh, the teaching is that we have come here through the process of evolution that we are the product of some uh, primordial sea in which, you know, lightning struck this, this juice that was floating around and created amino acids which came together to form proteins and all the way up to, to us. Voila! But as you look at Scripture, particularly as you look at Genesis, it tends to fly in the face of that particular teaching. And I don't think we have anything to be ashamed of. And, and the evolution of human history, using the word evolution in the correct sense of the term, meaning the progressive change, uh, having nothing to do with biological change, uh, cultural change, I, 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 you know, we see it right here. And I think there's considerable argument that could be offered that the old Stone Age, the Middle Stone Age, and the New Stone Age, what is called the Paleolithic, the Mesolithic, and the Neolithic, all of that Stone Age, 
uh, time could have all occurred within the lifetime of Adam and Eve. There are people today who are still living in the Stone Age. It's not a lot of people in our society who act like they're living in the Stone Age. <laughs> I think if we didn't have the book of Genesis, we'd discover that we have a, a scripture with no foundation. If all of a sudden we plunge straight into Exodus, and here's this man Moses being born, he's leading the children of Israel out of, of Egypt, we'd say, wait a minute, now who are these Israelites, and who's this man Moses, and what's going on here? So, so Genesis provides us with that so essential background so that we better understand the rest of Scripture. Genesis is absolutely essential because as you look here, you discover in uh, 3a, one of the questions it answers is a teleological question. That is a question of purpose. Why are we here, folks? I don't mean why are we in this room this morning. Hopefully, that's, there's been a purpose behind that too, hopefully. But, but why are we here on planet Earth? Genesis answers that question. Now, it doesn't give detail in the sense that God explains every little bit of how he did it and when he did it, but it tells us why we're here. And it's very important for that, for that reason. And then it also asks, answers a question of cosmogony. The question of origins. Where did we come from? It tells us very specifically where we came from. We came from the hand of God. You and I are made in the image of God. And even though uh, Adam was created out of the dust, that's nothing to be ashamed of. The dust was clean in those days. And, 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 and we see the, the birth of the human race, and it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's so much better than kind of coming out of the ooze and creeping up on the shore, you know, and going through all of these little uh, changes which supposedly took place, which are really have been proven statistically impossible. It couldn't have happened. How in the world can you have these in-between creatures that aren't fish and they aren't fowl? They can't fly and they can't swim. This is progress? I don't think so. It's illogical. Scripture is very, very logical. So what do we find here? We find the answers to the origins of the universe, of the solar system, of this planet, of you, of me, of life in general. We discover the origin of sin, of pain and suffering. We often ask, why, why do I suffer as I do? Why, why do we suffer? And so many people will ask you the question, if really God reigns, why do I suffer the way I do? Well, the book of Genesis opens the door to understanding that. It's very, very critical to that kind of understanding. And, of course, then it tells us also the origin of the chosen people, and that is very vital. It's kind of interesting, I believe, that God opened his word to us through revelations which he gave to Moses. Now, whatever we want to hold as far as what Moses had available to him, did Moses have some written records available to him? Was he uh, experiencing oral traditions? Whatever it was the case, we discover that God is the revelator. And Moses gets it straight from the hand of God. 
And we discover the beginnings of human history in this book. And then God goes along, and centuries later, he gives another revelation to a man by the name of John, in which he describes the end of it all. To Moses, the revelation of the beginning. To John, the revelation of the end. Perfect, perfect bracketing of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. In between, we have, as you look here at uh, C1b, in between the opening revelation of Genesis, you have the remaining Old Testament from the life of Moses himself as it's described in the beginnings of the book of Exodus all the way through the writings and the life of Nehemiah, a period of at least a millennium, we have God dealing, of course, with his people and revealing himself. And then we have that silent period, so-called the intertestamental period, fascinating period of time. Dr. Walmark back here teaches it at the college and Students who take that, you know, just are excited about learning about that period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the so-called 400 silent years, which aren't really silent. But then we have the New Testament, beginning with the life or at least the record of the conception of John the Baptist and, and ending with the revelation to John the Apostle a period of about 100 years, about one century of time, which culminates the written revelation from God. Now, I'm a firm believer myself in the fact that this is God's revelation to us, and he's not adding to it. He may illumine our minds, he may give us insight and understanding, but he is not revealing anything new in the sense of his word because it's all here. We have the complete revelation between Genesis 1 and Revelation chapter 22, as it's organized in our scripture. In the physical structure of this scripture, we, we discover, of course, Genesis begins our Bible, but it also is the first book, the first scroll within the Hebrew, Hebrew Torah, or Torah, the law the Law of Moses, as it's referred to by the Hebrews and even in Scripture. It is also the very first book in what the Greeks called the Pentateuch, the five, which are the same books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, comprise what is called the Pentateuch, and it also comprises the Hebrew Law, the Torah. Now, it's interesting to note important, I think, for us to look at the question of authorship. Who wrote these books? Who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus? Who wrote the law? Well, you know, if, if we're really committed to God as the revelator, we all must believe that all of Scripture was authored by God himself. God is the author of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. But God used human beings to actually put it on paper or parchment or, uh, you know, papyrus or whatever it was put on originally. With Moses, it was very possibly put on papyrus since he was raised in Egypt 
and would have had experience with that. Most conservative scholars from, from the very earliest time to the present believe that Moses is the writer of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch. Liberal scholars, however, have a different point of view. And there have been some who've argued that no, Ezra wrote the Pentateuch. That was kind of an early liberal opinion. More recently, the last 200 years or so, uh, liberal scholars have tended to believe that the Pentateuch is the product of the uh, putting together of several early documents. Documents were, which were written somewhere between 500 and 1,000 years after the time of Moses. Uh, these documents were put together by an editor later in time to form what we call the Pentateuch. This, this is the liberal argument. Now, some of you have maybe studied this, the so-called documentary theory which had its origins back in the 18th century, but was really kind of brought to a full head uh, by a German scholar by the name of Julius Wellhausen, who lived into the early years of this century to about World War I. And he uh, is the one who more or less uh, formalized what has largely been accepted as the documentary theory, which says that there are four major documents, uh, which they call the J, E, P, and D. The J refers to Yahweh being used a lot, Jehovah, J, uh, Elohim in the E, uh, the D, the Deuteronomic, and the P, the priestly, because uh, Ezra was supposedly involved in this. Uh, and these documents were uh, written, the, the J was supposedly put together in the 9th century, and the E in the 8th, and, and on down to the 7th and to the 6th. This is the theory, this is the, the argument, but you know what's interesting is most of these liberal scholars do not tend to believe in, uh, in real divine authorship or divine inspiration of Scripture in the sense that we might. They have a tendency to look upon the, the Scripture as that of human authorship and that God may have, you know, stuck his hand in here and there and put his word within the writing, but is the entire thing God's word? from the opening phrase of Genesis 1 through the closing phrase of Revelation chapter 22. Is this all the Word of God? Or is the Word of God simply contained in here and you have to search around and find it amongst all these human writings? Well, your liberal scholars tend to believe that way. But most of your conservative scholars believe Moses authored the entire Pentateuch or was the writer of the entire Pentateuch. And whatever differences you might find there were differences in his character or in God's revelation or in later copying and translation, whatever, uh, might take place. I think it's important for us, if we belong to the evangelical community, to believe in an inerrant revelation from God. After all, God is almighty, all-powerful. He's omniscient, omnipresent. Does God have to make mistakes? No. Does he have to allow people to act erroneously simply because we're fallen? No. He's able to perfect himself through us as he may choose to do. I think it's important for us to note that there are many internal statements which validate mosaic authorship. Let's just look at a few of these. If you look at the book of Exodus, 
chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, we read this. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early and built an altar and so forth. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. It's most likely that Moses penned the words that we find in Genesis while on the Exodus or in the wilderness journey, probably during that time. Maybe the revelation was given to him while he was on Mount Sinai, along with the revelation that we know to be the Ten Commandments and their expansion. Was this when God gave it to him? We don't know. But certainly it was God who gave it to him. Numbers chapter 33. Numbers 33, the first couple of verses. These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. Again, Moses recording. Moses recording the events as they transpired. The word of the Lord and the events of the journey. Moses recorded these. And he was able to record them, I believe, accurately because of the Spirit of God being upon him. Maybe more importantly than these passages, though, are the references in the New Testament. Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, verse 26. Now, this is within the context of Christ's response to the Sadducees. As you know, Jesus had many encounters with Pharisees and Sadducees, and in response to them, part of his statement includes verse 26, or is included in verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What this is, is Jesus Christ himself affirming that Moses recorded the account which we call Exodus. Jesus said Moses wrote this. Now, if we can't take Jesus' word for it, then we're in big trouble. Because I can't think of anybody else whose word I'd be willing to take. One of the problems I see in looking at the different interpretations, and I don't think it's wrong to study Scripture to, to try to discover how the Scripture came down to us, but I think you often will discover that those who are trying to, to take away divine authorship and, and to make it a merely human book are those who do not accept the authority of God in their own lives. There's a gigantic arrogance there. We, we experience this arrogance in, in the very fact of modern scholars looking back at history. Modern scholars tend to look back at history and think of the writers of the previous age as being erroneous in their interpretations of the events of the past, although they lived a lot closer to the event than we do today. 
Now, how it is an author 2,000 years later can say somebody that 2,000 years before wrote an account of a certain event which happened in his lifetime could be erroneous is, is to me, arrogant. It's like saying, you know, well, you may have seen it, but I know better because I'm a scholar. You know. uh, more and more, uh, many modern scholars are accepting some of the ancient writings as being more accurate. In fact, even works like the Iliad, which is simply a poem. Uh, a lot more is believed to have been in there that was accurate than was originally thought. Part of that, of course, came from the fact that in the 19th century, a little boy in Germany who heard the Iliad read to him as bedtime stories, and I don't know many, how many of you had the Iliad read to you as a bedtime story or have read to your kids the Iliad as a bedtime story, but uh, he told his father, when I grew up, I'm going to find Troy. And when he grew up, he found Troy, which, of course, gave a lot of credence to the Iliad, which it didn't have before, that there really was a place that this event described or that this book described. Well, obviously, there's a lot of fairy tale in it, too. Luke 24, the end of the book of Luke, chapter 24, verse 27. This, of course, the first verse here is on part of the ex uh, of Jesus expounding to the two on the road to Emmaus. And he said, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What is he saying? That Moses comprised part of the scripture. Moses' writings were part of the scripture. He attributes it to Moses. Verse 44, and now he said to them, and this is after he appears in the, in the room with his disciples. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. A statement basically incorporating the entire Hebrew scripture. Those things written in the law of Moses. Jesus again affirming Mosaic authorship. And Jesus ought to know he was there, whereas Wellhausen and others were not. Romans chapter 10. Here Paul is quoting from Leviticus chapter 18. Romans 10, 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Moses writes, quoting from Leviticus chapter 18, Moses wrote it, Paul says. And if we believe that Paul was inspired by the living God to write Romans, then we must believe that he was accurate in his statement that Moses wrote those things. Now, the importance of Genesis to us, I think, can be seen in the simple fact that it is the Bible book most quoted by other Bible books. Every New Testament author quotes or refers to Genesis. There are something like 200 references, inferences to Genesis found in the New Testament. So obviously it was very, very important as foundational for New Testament teaching. I find it kind of interesting to look 
at the book of Genesis as it, it's the book where it describes a perfect world which becomes an imperfect world. It's what you might call paradise lost. And then you look at Revelation at the other end where, you where it describes an imperfect world that becomes a perfect world, which is what? Paradise regained. And so one end you have paradise lost, the other end paradise regained, and thank the Lord we're a whole lot closer to paradise regained. <laughs> In fact, I hope we're very close to paradise regained, right? <clears throat> the key verse in the book of Genesis is, of course, the first verse of the book. In fact, I've seen uh, one author, I don't remember who it was, who built a sort of a pyramid. And, and the foundation of the pyramid uh, was Genesis 1, which was foundational to the whole book of Genesis, which was foundational to the entire scripture. If we accept the very first phrase where it says, in the beginning God, if we accept that phrase, the rest of Scripture is a lot easier to understand and to accept. But if we reject that first phrase, the rest of Scripture just becomes another book of literature, the way it's studied in many of our universities today, with no power, no understanding, because of rejection of that first phrase, in the beginning, God. Now, some of you are familiar with Dr. Henry Morris. He's the president of uh, the Institute of Creation Research, and he's written lots of books. And, of course, he specifically deals with creation, and he is really a, a very fundamental creationist. And it's very interesting that uh, in one of his writings, he demonstrates, and, and this list that I've given to you, which is on the top of your second page of outline, this list comes from him. And basically, he argues that this first verse of Genesis chapter 1 basically refutes all of human religious philosophy from the beginning of time to the very, very present. Now, he has summarized most of human religious philosophy in these, uh, what, seven or eight uh, that I have listed for you here. For example, atheism. Atheism is basically the belief that there is no God. A lot of people claim to be atheists, but really they aren't because they worship themselves. They're the God of their own little world. Everybody has a God. But anyway, the, the philosophy of atheism is that there is no God, no supreme being who, who rules creation and who is the creator. But if you look at this particular verse, it says, in the beginning, God. It doesn't say, in the beginning, nothing. No. Out of the primordial chaos, there arose in some little human mind a kind of a concept of a supreme being. No, in the beginning, God. There is a God. Therefore, atheism is totally wrong. It's a false doctrine, a false philosophy. What about pantheism? Pantheism... I didn't think it was that funny. <laughs> Pantheism is the belief that the laws, the forces, the matter of the universe, all of this is God. If you've ever studied Hinduism, you know that although Hinduism is polytheistic and they have as many gods as there are Hindus almost, uh, 
but it's also pantheistic. You, you've, maybe some of you have seen the Star Wars trilogy and they talk about the force be with you. That's pantheism. You're on the light side of the force, I mean the, the good side of the force or the bad side of the force. This is pantheism. The belief that there's some kind of energy out there which is God. He's not personal. But the scripture says that there is a personal God and he transcends his creation. His creation is not God. God is in everything that has been made, but there's a difference between God being in everything and that being God. And you and I have to be very, very careful as Christians how we phrase that. We say, oh, but God is in all of nature and God's in the sunrise and God's in the sunset. Yeah, in a sense. But we, may, we, be, we should be careful we don't state it in a pantheistic way. God transcends his creation. He's beyond it, much greater than his creation. Polytheism, the belief in, in many gods. As I said, the Hindus have, have, have hundreds of millions of gods. Of course, they have certain ones that are more, most important to them. Uh, Brahma, which is sort of, he, he's there, but nobody pays a lot of attention to him. He's, he's the creator. They mostly worship Vishnu and his many uh, revelations, such as, of course, Krishna, which we've heard a lot about in, in this country. And then Shiva, who's the opposite. Vishnu is, is the good guy, you know, he, he helps things be renewed and Shiva's going around trying to destroy everything. And so there's this kind of a dualism. I mean, Hinduism is so mixed up. You've got to have a lot of screws loose to really accept it or to begin to understand it. Because something that's got dualism and pantheism and polytheism, all this stuff mixed in. Well, of course, it's an eclectic religion. They'll take Christians, too, as long as you don't become single-minded and saying Christ is the only way. If you say Christ is a way, then they, they welcome you in. We had neighbors like that down in the Bay Area. We lived next to a Hindu family. And uh, they invited me to be a speaker at a Hindu wedding. I went. <laughs> and my wife and I sat in, in, as they went through their little shindig up in verse, you know, going through the Sanskrit scriptures, the Rigveda and so forth, and putting their little petals and burning them up on the stage. I don't know, I guess they got a, a variance from the fire marshal to do this, but um, we, we were praying in our hearts, you know, against the enemy because we knew he was present. And, and then I gave a, you know, I talked about Jesus Christ as being the only way. And I'm not too sure how many of them liked me, but our neighbors still accepted us, and uh, we, we gave them uh, books like Death of a Guru, and I, I don't know, they, <laughs> they said they read it, but, uh, and they, they, they allowed us to pray for them. But, you know, they're so eclectic, so, you know, anything and everything is okay, that it's really hard to nail them down. And so, Scripture very clearly says there is one and only one God. His name is Yahweh, Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's not many gods. Materialism, which is the belief in the eternality of matter. Matter has always been here, and it's just now reformed itself into the universe which we know. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, Democritus uh, believed that there were little particles called atoms. It's interesting how old the atomic theory is. 
even though it was renewed at the beginning of the 20th century in a, in a more scientific way, there were beliefs in atoms that go clear back to the, uh, well, well over 2,000 years ago. And the only reason that theory didn't continue was Aristotle threw it out and said, I don't believe it. And Aristotle, of course, was more influential than others on, on Greek thought as it came down to the Romans and, and hence to us. But he argued that you and I are where we are and the things around us are where they are because of the fortuitous combination of these little, cre these little invisible things called atoms. The belief in the eternality of matter, but it very well says here, in the beginning God created. And we'll be talking about that word created in a few minutes. It disallows the existence of matter before that time. Matter did not exist until God brought it into existence. And then dualism. Dualism is the belief that there are two gods, and they're more or less equal, but they're in opposition to each other. The god of light and the god of darkness, the god of good and the god of evil, the god with a white hat and the god with a black hat, you know, whatever. Now, Zoroastrianism was a good example of this. Created about 2,500 years ago by a man that the Germans called Zarathustra. Um, this, this belief was that you and I are caught in the midst of an eternal struggle between Ahura Mazda, the god of good, and Ahriman, the god of evil, and that there's this eternal battle going on, and really, according to Zoroastrianism, ultimately the good god would prevail. And if you were on his side, everything would be okay in the very end. But dualism is false. It says in the beginning God, it doesn't say in the beginning God and a co-equal force called Satan existed and they struggled and created this hodgepodge. You look into ancient Greek uh, mythology and ancient uh, Egyptian mythology and you discover this dualism also exists. And the world is kind of the product of this clash. But that's not the way it is, is it? Satan is nowhere co-equal and there's no indication God was, uh, that, that Satan was involved in creation. He's a destroyer. He's not a creator. And then humanism. It doesn't say in the beginning there was man and man created. It says in the beginning was God. God created and one of the creations was man. How dare we arrogate ourselves to equality with God. How dare we be God of our own lives? He is the creator, not we. Then lastly, evolutionism, which argues that everything just sort of came into existence by this, by this elan, if you will, this, this upward force, which brings a higher and higher level of existence to the universe. It says, God created. God created. Let's look at this first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is or was a point When the universe began, there was a point, a moment, and it's hard to use this kind of terminology because that's what we're used to. 
when it all started. Before that moment, we do not know anything about what existed. We know God existed and that's all. It's really hard for us to conceive of what did God do before he created the universe. That's beyond our ability to, to even probe. All we're told is there was a moment when God created. You're all familiar, of course, with the first verse of the Gospel of John, the one that the uh, people who come to your door with the little bags and want to sell you their little magazines have modified so that it doesn't so blatantly deny their belief. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, the same basic phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the question that could be asked is, when was the beginning? It says in the beginning, but when was the beginning? When, as we could be able to figure it out. If we were to backtrack through, through time, could we find the moment of the beginning? Well, obviously, no. There's no way to accurately determine that event when it, when it took place. The Scripture simply tells us that the, the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent God created a world which became temporal, changeable. And he created it at a moment which he said is the beginning. Now the Hebrew word barasheth means at the start or the first in a series. So what we have here is the beginning of time. In the beginning was the moment time began, that which you and I understand. You, you remember if you took uh, elementary geometry that you studied about Euclid, the ancient Greek who, who put together the first major textbook on plain geometry. And, and that was Euclidean geometry which, in which you had length and width and you had height or depth, three-dimensional three geometry. And, and that was pretty acceptable until you came to the late 19th and early 20th century and you have men like Einstein and others who come along and say, but that doesn't work because you must think of length, width, and height in time. And so you ha they, they, they brought in the fourth dimension, time. And of course, you know, they talk about the universe being a compound curve, curve this way and curve this way, double para parables, para double parabolic, <laughs> whatever, uh, situation. And suddenly we're lost, right? Unless you're into higher math and higher physics, you say, okay, whatever you say, you know. Uh, time becomes a factor. And it was God who brought it into existence. And time's very important to us. We're looking at the clock and saying, isn't time about up here? Church will take a certain length of time. But of course, Scripture tells us that time is, is irrelevant to God. One day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, quote the psalmist in Psalm, 90, or Psalm 102, and we read this, 
And thou, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens, they are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up, as a garment they will also be changed. But thou art the same, thy years will not come to an end. A statement of both finite world as which we understand, a universe which is running down, which is decaying, in which time exists, and an infinite, uh, non-decaying God who lives outside of time. We don't know when the beginning was, but there have been those who have tried to tell us when the beginning was. Some of you may have the old Schofield Bible. If you have the old Schofield Bible, you probably have certain dates in your margin. Now, always remembering, of course, the margin was not inspired. Uh, as the scripture was inspired, even though some adhere to it as if it were. You know, the Schofield notes in some people's mind are inspired as the rest of the text. But um, James Usher, who was an Anglican archbishop in the 17th century, went to the book of Genesis and he worked backwards through the chronologies there, and he came to a year which he said was 4004 B.C. as the date for creation. Other divines came along and said, not only was it 4004, it was the week of October 17 to 24. So what, what do we have now? 4004 plus 1991, you know, uh, 6,000, almost 6,000 years in a couple of weeks since creation. And, and another one came along and said, it was not only that, it was 9 o'clock in the morning, you know. <laughs> Now, we laugh, and that is funny, but they were serious. Now, others have suggested dates which have been both closer to us, and, but most further. And, of course, in the area of evolution, uh, the area of the geologic column, there's been a demand for a long period of time, and so they've run it back to almost five billion years. Now, they claim that's based on the radiometric dating of certain kinds of rocks, but if you ever go into radiometric dating, whether you're talking about U-235 to lead-206 uh, decay series or potassium argon or whatever you deal with, all of those series are fraught with problems, big problems. And so they don't really prove anything. But you've got to have a long period of time if you're going to believe in evolution because this just can't happen overnight unless you're going to go to the hopeful monster theory, which some have decided to go to today because they found Darwin, neo-Darwinianism to be off base, and so they're going back to the Goldschmidt's old idea, you know, chicken lays an egg and out comes a lizard type thing. And, you know, if you want to believe in that kind of evolution, you can, of course, support evolution in a short period of time. But you've got to have long periods for evolution to be plausible. Now, what, let me read one verse to you. Uh, I think it's very telling. And uh, next time you get caught in an argument with an evolutionist, maybe this mind ought to at least run through your mind, even if you don't tell it to him in, uh, or her. Job 38.4 says this, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? <laughs> Where were you? when I laid the foundation of the world. Were you there? No. The date of creation, 
is non-falsifiable, meaning you cannot prove it, you cannot disprove it. So evolution cannot go beyond being a faith. It cannot be a fact of science. And then, of course, others, and we'll stop with this, others of the creationist point of view argue that creation could not have been further back than 10 to 20,000 BC. And they give many arguments as to why. They argue uh, relative to the magnetic decay of the uh, magnetism of the earth. And, and we have certain figures to show that it's decaying at a fairly rapid rate. And if you postulate back the other way, you can find out uh, at what time you'd have a magnetic force so great the earth couldn't exist. Uh, the salting of the sea. Uh, there, there are just dozens. The cosmic dust aggradation. Cosmic dust is falling into this planet every day. And if it was around five billion years, there ought to be so much more cosmic dust, which is clearly identifiable because of its chemical com composition. Show much more here than there is. Instead of just inches, there should be uh, yards of it on this planet, if this planet had been here for five billion. And there are numerous other examples to support the theory of a very, very young Earth. There are many conservative scholars who say, you know, probably the date of creation does not go much back before five to 8,000 BC. Well, one of the things I teach in a class out there, I teach at the college called World Civilization, is that when you look at the cultures, look at the culture of India, China, uh, Mesopotamia, Egypt, you look at the different world cultures, and as you go back into time, you'll discover right around 4,000 BC, is the date in almost all these cultures when there is first a clearly identifiable civilization of some sort, be it relatively primitive or more as advanced as it was to become in Mesopotamia. And, and what that would indicate to me would be uh, not the date of creation, but a date when they came down off of Mount Sinai, I, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, not Mount Sinai, but uh, Mount Ararat or the mountains of Ararat uh, and, and began to repeople the earth. And if you look at the date of Jarmo and Sialk and Tel Halaf and Jericho and some of these places, you discover that these dates fit in, in a general way, with uh, a flood that probably doesn't date back more than 6,000 years BC. Uh, and, and all of this fits in very, very well, I think, ultimately with Genesis. Well, I think because of the hour, we will stop at that point, and so next week we'll pick up with Roman numeral 2b on your outline, and then there'll be another page of outline.